we're in Ecclesiastes. We're in chapter 3 this morning. We'll review briefly. Um, if you've been out, again, we got podcasts. We got YouTube. We got all the things you guys can track with us if you are out. If you're online with us, good morning to you. Um, over the last three weeks, we've been kind of hit three things so far. Three weeks, three things. The first was uh, we focus on this word hevel. Everybody say hevel. Good. So hevel is a Hebrew word that means vapor. It means meaningless. It means vanity. It can be translated in different ways, but it's the word that uh, Solomon uses over and over and over again in this book called Ecclesiastes. And the idea behind it is that you can't catch it. You can't fully understand life. And so when you think you got it, you actually don't. And so he introduces chapter one in that way. Uh, In chapter two, in the first part, we learn about this pleasure experiment that Solomon went on. Again, he's just beyond us. $2.2 trillion is what his net worth is or was, rest in peace. And so uh, the pleasure experiment, he went on, he did everything to the nth degree to figure out, is there something in life that will satisfy? And he came out on the other side, he says, vanity. And, and then we, we uh, then this last week, we talked about uh, the gift of death, the gift of death, because death, when we see it, teaches us to number our days, that we would live uh, with hearts of wisdom. This gift of death reminds us of what we really value. We can so easily get on this treadmill and just spend all of our lives chasing our tail after the next thing. But death reminds us that, man, we're here today, gone tomorrow. We are much more fragile than we realize and it reminds us to give ourselves to the things that matter the most. And so that's where we've been the last few weeks. And I told you that the, the clouds kind of clear up a little bit, at least for this week, with Ecclesiastes and there's a little bit of hope that's provided for us. And so as we enter into uh, Ecclesiastes th- 3, uh, some of you might have felt out of touch last week. You were like, Tim McCoo? Like he's saying, what song? And so you might have been like, what's happening? I feel lonely and sad. And so, man, if your primetime music scene wasn't the 2000s, let's go back to 1965. Uh, and let's consider the rising American band, The Birds. And so The Birds wrote a song called Turn, Turn, Turn. And what I'm not going to do is sing it. That was, I used that token once about every 10 years. And so that one's gone. Um, but they did sing this song, To Everything, Turn, Turn, Turn. There is a season, Turn, Turn, Turn. Yeah, yeah, harmonies, wow. At a time, the reason why I didn't sing this song is I couldn't land how this went. And I felt like I was going to screw it up in front of you. But it says, and a time to every purpose under the sun. And so they covered... Solomon's original, okay? So they took Ecclesiastes almost verbatim, and they wrote a song about Ecclesiastes 3, and that's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to look at the bird's cover of Solomon's ditty. And so uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're going to read 1 through 8. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under the sun. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, 
a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. This is everything has a season. Everything has an occasion, would be another translation. Everything and every activity on earth has a time. Things that happen to us, um, God uses to shape and conform us. He uses such things. Think of these 14 things that I just read as ingredients that God uses, things that happen to us. We got some bakers in here, I know. We have some meat smokers in here, I know. And so you have ingredients that in and of themselves would be gross if you ate by themselves, right? Think about flour. You just pound some flour, like not going well for you, right? But if you mix that with some other things, you get some cookies that are just, you know what I mean? So those can be very good. Mixed together can create something really delicious, but in and of themselves can make you a little bit sick, These ingredients that we just read are for our good. You know, if it was up to us, we would pick all the things that don't hurt. We'd pick all the things that don't stretch and all the things that don't lead us to grow in character. But all of these ingredients are a part of life and God uses them for our good. It's what Paul said in Romans 5, that suffering leads to character. He didn't say ease leads us to character. Hardship and difficulty lead us to character. The chef, who would be God, uses these ingredients for our good. Those who don't experience these challenging things are are typically really, if we're honest, self-centered, unempathetic, and a pain to be around. Right? People that have not experienced these pains in life don't know what it's like to enter into hardship and pain and difficulty and sorrow. Eating flour is gross. But man, if you love a good cake, then you got to have flour. And in that mixing together, you can taste something beautiful. So the chef uses these ingredients for our good. Again, like I said, there's 14 ingredients here. Some that are delightful and some that are disquieting. Seven sections of each. And in his perfect wisdom, he uses all of these things to help us grow. The good, the bad, the ugly. He uses these things to help us grow. In this, in this um, segment, we read the word time in eight verses 28 times. Time can haunt us. It pressures us and makes us feel our shortcomings, revealing both our misuse of time and our boredom and our fragility. And he uses that word over and over again. Time marches on. Seasons change. What we read in chapter one, the generations come and generations go. See, seasons don't change. Uh, They don't change Uh, for us, like they change for people in previous generations. For us, we might change our wardrobe. We might pull out the box from the attic. We might change our uh, order at Starbucks. But other than that, seasons don't really change us too much. But for farmers, seasons are significant. They do drastic things. I've tried to grow tomatoes, and I can grow weeds in my grass, and so maybe I am kind of like a farmer. And so we as farmers, we understand what it's like for seasons to come 
and seasons to go. Either way, a farmer has to humbly surrender and accept the time and the seasons, what the the time and seasons require of them. Planting season comes, and you have to embrace planting season, whether you want to embrace planting season or not. You have to embrace plucking season, regardless if that's the time or not. You have to submit to the seasons and accept them regardless. You're forced to accept the season you are in. There's a guy named Wendell Berry who's a novelist. He's a poet. He's a farmer. We would do well to listen to some of his insight. He invites us to slow down a bit more, which I need more of. And he had a quote of him and his wife who, uh, again, as a farmer, kind of talked about a change in seasons. And he said this, very simple, but it, I think it speaks truth to us. After we planted a garden last Tuesday, Tanya spoke of uh, how much she liked the idea that we had done it. Not because of any convention uh, or custom or law, but because it was time. It was an embrace, an acceptance of that reality of which they were in. As a farmer, when a season comes, they embrace it and accept it. It is what it is. But we're foreign to this idea. We live in the uh, industrial, post-industrial revolution where we're no longer submitting to the seasons that change, but we are now part of a machine that's 24-7, that's always moving, always consistent. But Solomon is calling us to a different place, to embrace seasons of life. By faith, we're challenged to embrace the seasons that we're in. Some hard seasons and some good seasons, but nonetheless to embrace them. The chef, who is God, uses these ingredients for our good to shape us. And if we learn to embrace them, we're better for it. Keep this in mind. Paul says in Philippians, uh, that we'll get to in just a minute, in every season, he learned to be content. We'll get back to that in just a minute. In verse 9, it says this. What gain has the farm, has the... What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So there's purpose in all of these ingredients, and there's a few things I want us to consider in what we just read. The first is that his plan is to make everything beautiful in its time, to make everything beautiful in his time. He uses these ingredients. He can brilliantly use the good, the bad, and the ugly to make things beautiful. Again, he makes everything beautiful in its time. Pregnancy is an example of this. It begins with pleasure. And from pleasure, it leads to nausea, okay? It goes to nausea, and then it goes to uncomfort, and then it goes to swollen feet and back pain. 
and weird cravings. Then it goes to uh, labor pains that I don't know much of, but I've been a part, I've been in the same room of someone who has, and it's a ridiculous pain. But then this hormone is released that helps you forget some of which you just experienced. And you hold that baby, and it feels a little bit worth it. And then somehow a year or two go by, and you want to repeat the cycle. He makes everything beautiful in its time. See, we're on the human side of time, and unable to see how some things can be beautiful. Elizabeth Roth first identified the five stages of grief in 1969. The five stages were denial and isolation, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. And that fifth one, acceptance, is critical in our understanding of the process of growth and healing through difficult things. It's imperative to eventually get to the point of acceptance as you go through the other four stages prior to, to allow healing to come. See, we need to feel pain. For sure, we talked about despair last week. But eventually, the goal is to move through that pain in time to that place of healing. See, faith is trusting God is using our pain, deep pain. Like I know some of the pain that you guys have experienced in this room. And he uses, he uses the, the most difficult things that life can throw out at us. And he is able in his brilliance to use those things and turn them somehow for beauty. Somehow. Bring good and even beauty from them. St. Chapelle in Paris, which is a cathedral, has one of the most beautiful stained glass windows. It should be potentially here, right here. Beautiful, right? I mean, just thousands upon thousands of broken glass that's been put together in this beautiful arrangement called a stained glass window in Paris. It's stunning. But man, you zoom up close enough, you get a ladder and you lean up against that, which you shouldn't do. But if you did, and you got really close uh, to some of that glass, you would see it's just all broken. It's all broken, filled with broken glass. And we only have that vantage point in this life. We don't have this view in life. We don't have the ability to see what God is doing. We just don't. All we have is the up-close view of broken glass. And sometimes we can't see the beauty that's being created because we can't step back far enough. But everything is made beautiful in this time, in its time. Humanity, it says later on in the text, can't find out what God is doing. And you'll never know what's happening behind the scenes. But mystery is a prerequisite to faith. You have to allow some level of mystery in your faith to trust that God is at work even if you don't see what he is doing. It's the essence of faith, the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. There is a mystery there where you're trusting in a God that you cannot control and you're trusting that he is creating beauty even in pain and hardship. And it's the object of our faith that we're clinging to and difficulty to know the good it's coming. We trust him even though we don't know what he is doing. Man, our vision is so 
limited. All we see is that broken glass. But this text, and I believe it with all of my heart because I see the life of Jesus, that he makes everything beautiful in its time. He will make everything sad come untrue. That's what we're moving towards. He makes everything beautiful in its time. The second thing we see in this latter half of the text is that eternity has been put into our hearts. This verse can very easily get thrown out of context, but we now see it in the context of what, it's, uh, what Solomon is saying. In the midst of seasons of life, there is a true north that's drawing us in the midst of seasons of life. There's an internal compass within each of us. Maybe said differently, we are spiritual creatures looking for spiritual realities. That's who we are. We're all being drawn towards that end. G.K. Chesterton um, says this, and um, I want to read it to you. Just as we all like love tales because there's an instinct of sex. We all like astonishing tales because they touch the nerve of the ancient instinct of astonishment. This is proved by the fact that when we are very young children, we do not need fairy tales. We only need tales. Mere life is interesting enough. A child of seven, seven years old, is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door and saw a dragon. But a child of three is excited by being told that Tommy opened a door Boys like romantic tales, but babies like realistic tales, because they find them romantic. In fact, a baby is about the only person I should think to whom a modern realistic novel could be read without boring him. Innate to us, we are longing to be a part of something astonishing. Why? Because eternity has been written upon our hearts. It's unavoidable. We are in the greatest tale. All the tales that Marvel's moving towards, all the tales that Disney is moving towards, is all moving towards this great end of the meta narrative of the story of God redeeming the world. We're in this great story here and now. There really is an evil sorcerer. We are really under an enchantment. There is a noble prince who has broken that enchantment. We will indeed find victory over death because of this prince. We are all spiritual creatures looking for spiritual realities. Eternity has been written on our hearts. And that leads to this last point that Solomon is trying to drill into us and I want us to land with. In light of these ingredients, in light of him making things beautiful, a lot of eternity to be being written upon our hearts. What do we then do? What does it look like for us practically? And the third thing that Solomon says in this latter half of the text is he charges us to live in the moment and to enjoy our lot. To live in the moment and enjoy our lot. I want to break this down a little bit for us. Remember, you can trust, um, remember you can trust God in any season. So we are invited to, regardless of the season, to Drink deep. It's imperative to not overlook this. Solomon is charging us that in to choose the moments that are right before us and to enjoy them. In 1923, Coca-Cola used this motto, enjoy thirst. Right? That was 1923. And then they resurrected it again in 2000. 
And they use this phrase, enjoy. And so now at the top of Coca-Cola, trademark, of course, you have enjoy as kind of a subliminal way to communicate that Coca-Cola is to be enjoyed. It's implying slowing down and experiencing what's in your hands. That's what they want. That's what this marketing strategy strategy is doing, to enjoy what's in your hand, what's right Before you, as the bird stole from Solomon, so Coke stole from Solomon. This reality of enjoyment. This point is crucial to understand Ecclesiastes. You won't be able to control your life. You will not get what the treadmill promises you. You are more fragile than you want to admit. Therefore, Enjoy what is right before you. Don't look for the future. Don't look to the past. Don't compare to others, but to enjoy what is before you. Again, Theodore Roosevelt said, comparison is the thief of our joy. When we begin to compare what we don't have with others that do have, we forget all the things we actually do have, and it steals what is right before us. Therefore, we're to learn to live in the moment. All we have is what we have right before us. And the invitation to us is to choose to enjoy your lot and to keep choosing to enjoy your lot. The friends you do have, not the friends you don't. The family you do have, not the family you don't. The food that you do have before you, not the food you don't. The sun on your face, the simple thing, a glass of water, a good cup of coffee, a cool morning, a smell of a fire, to enjoy what is right before you. We're too busy. We're too busy to enjoy what is right before you. But Solomon said, hey, listen, busyness ain't going to get you anywhere. But man, if you'd learn to slow down and see what is before you, you'll actually find gifts that you didn't know existed. And all these ingredients... And we're called to see the gifts that are before us. Man, life is a vapor. You cannot control it. But you have so many gifts that are right before you. So Solomon charges us to live in the moment and to enjoy our lot. And worry, in comparison, will steal any enjoyment you will ever have of all the gifts that God has given to you. So he's implying don't miss what you have for what you wish you had. Don't miss what you have right before you for what you wish you had. Choose to enjoy and keep choosing. I emphasize choose because it's not a feeling. Oftentimes we can't feel enjoyment. Sometimes we do, but we have to choose it and keep choosing it. It's so easy to allow what we don't have to keep us from the enjoyment of the gifts that we do have. You can't enjoy life when you're chasing your tail. You can't enjoy life when you're always looking for the next best thing. You can't enjoy life when you're chasing a career or place in life that will never deliver the promises it says it will deliver. Instead, be present with what is right before you. Over and over again, there's multiple times, at least five times in Ecclesiastes, there's this reminder, enjoy, 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 enjoy. It is a reminder for us to embrace the reality of which we have right before us. And more than ever, 
we're being pulled away from this. You know, we come together, we gather as a distinct people, remembering that there's a better way, there's a way of Jesus that we are invited into that's different from the culture and the machine of this world. We have this new appendage called the iPhone or Android, and it keeps us connected but never present. You can't be connected and present at the same time. And we can be physically present with people right before us, but we're not actually emotionally present with the people before us. We end up living dual lives, and we're present with the people that we love the most, but we're, not, we're connected somewhere else. Man, I feel this so strongly. I might be alone. Probably not. Man, I long, though, to enjoy my lot. The more I dive into Ecclesiastes, the more I'm like, God, I want to enjoy the gifts you've given to me. I want to be grounded. I want to be stable and seeing that you've provided so much for me. I don't want to look for the next thing. I don't want to desire the next craving. I want to embrace what is right before me. So over the last month or so, I'm like, this is like a real thing for me. This is not like, um, this is not just like preacher talk where you like say it's something and it's not really something. Like this is for real something right before me. And, and so what I've done is I've written a prayer that on a regular basis when I drive into my driveway, I stop in my vehicle, I turn it off, and I pray this prayer. Father, I thank you for the grace and strength to work today. I remember, however, that I have limits and that work isn't all you have called me to. I remember that to be connected means that I am not also present. So as I pull into my driveway, I remember the gift and call to be husband, to be father. As I clock into my evening, give me the grace and strength to be present with the ones I love the most. Man, the gift of enjoying our lot is such a necessary reality that we need Work, yeah, sometimes beckons us at night. For sure, I, I get that. But having that space, depending upon the season of life you're in, to be able to hone in and to enjoy what's right before you, not just live, work, 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 sleep, wake up, drink coffee, work, 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 sleep, wake up. Like that, that's not going to get us anywhere. But having that space where we can enter into enjoyment, to get off the treadmill and to enjoy. And it's within the surrender of our seasons. It's this moment where we enter into surrendering and accepting our realities and seeing what is before us that's made such a gift for us. So the invitation is clear. Amidst life, there are no guarantees, but the greatest gift we can give to ourselves is to choose contentment, to choose contentment. Contentment is an undervalued spiritual practice. Paul, again, like I said earlier, in Philippians 4, should be up here, um, 12 and 13. It might not be. I might have forgot to send it over. Um, and so I'm just going to look it up real quick. Um, God eats popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Real quick. Chapter 4, verse 12. Um, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He learned that in every season, he learned. What does learn mean? He learned contentment. It was not natural to him. So for some of us, we hear this, and we too need to learn to enjoy, learn to be content with the season of life we 
are in much and in little, Solomon charges us to live in the moment and to enjoy our lot. And when we embrace the definition of American success, though, we will never be able to enjoy our lot. American success is bigger is better. It's metrically based. It's, it's this hamster wheel that we step onto. It's a pressure to keep up with others. But man, when we remember kingdom success, walking with Jesus, doing what he says, leaving the results up to God, it takes the burden off of us. That in your business, that leave the work hard. Yes, work hard. But leave the results up to God. In your family, do what you feel called to do, but leave the results up to God. The burden isn't on us. Solomon charges us to live in the moment and enjoy our lot. I'll close with this catechism that Ecclesiastes uh, has created for us. It's a question and an answer. Where do we glorify and enjoy God forever? The answer, right here, where you are under the sun. That's what we're called to. Under the sun, where we are, how do we glorify God? We enjoy him right here. Not in six months when I get that thing, when I graduate or when I get that promotion or when I have that kid or when I buy that house. Like it's just a treadmill. But to in the moment where you are, to enjoy the gifts that God has given to you. So man, ingredients are part of life for sure. And regardless of your season, we're called to enjoy. Don't overlook the season you're in. Don't. Too many times I hear people regret for overlooking a season that they're in. And they look back and they say, I'll never have that season again. Man, enjoy the lot before you. I would encourage you as we close to man, choose contentment. Last week we talked about homework of considering death. I don't know. I know of two people that did it because they texted me, but that might be it. We consider death and creating space to consider death in a way that's good for our souls. And this week, man, consider what it looks like to, to choose contentment. Maybe it's an evening with a friend or with a spouse and consider maybe by yourself. Choose contentment. Don't wait till Thanksgiving. You know what I mean? Like you don't have to wait till Thanksgiving to actually be content. Choose gratitude. But man, this week, carve out some time in your schedule and just consider that your father is so kind to you. He's given you things that you've never given him credit for. Consider it. Allow enjoyment to take over your heart and to consider the gifts that he's given to you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Ecclesiastes and the wisdom that's provided here. Lord, we confess that we love to live in the future. We love to live in the past. But we do we struggle with accepting and embracing our moments. And yet this is all that we've been given. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to have eyes to see. Help us to eyes, have eyes to see the gifts that are before us. Lord, we just say this morning, thank you for your provision. And the small things, the small gifts of life, the common graces, the sun rising, 
cool air, then the warm air, and then hopefully the cool air soon. Lord, all the things that we experience, I pray that you would help us to see the gifts and to enjoy. And we thank you for the greatest gift. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came, though we didn't deserve it, and you came to rescue us from this enchantment, to bring us to yourself, and to swallow death forever. And this morning, we remember the story we're a part of. Give us eyes to see. Give us the gift of faith to remember what you are doing in this world and in our lives. God, we bless you and we love you in Jesus' name.